0: for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 21st, 2011. Uh yep, I'm still here. <laughs> oh man, poor Harold Camping. pray that God gives him repentance. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Well, sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and what we've got to do, the comparative work. We've got to, well, speak the truth. We've got to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Now, once a week, we do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Today is our light edition. I've been out of the studio for most of the day. i made a quick trip up to uh, Chicago and uh, came back. Uh, <laughs> quick turnaround. Mach 5, hair on fire, that kind of stuff. But what we're going to be doing uh, today is we're going to be listening to two lectures uh, delivered by Dr. Adam Francisco. Uh, Dr. Francisco has his uh, doctorate from Oxford University. And uh, he's uh, literally one of the foremost Christian apologists on the uh, on the issue of Islamic studies. So our first lecture we're going to listen to from Dr. Adam Francisco is entitled The Muslim Worldview We'll pause right after that, and then we'll play uh, the second one, which is a lot shorter, actually. And it's going to be an overview uh, on Islamic theology. This will be part one of that. And so you'll see in our light editions, we're kind of mixing things up at the moment. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Adam Francisco and the Muslim worldview.
1: Uh, Today our topic is generally the Muslim worldview. Uh, Next week, we'll look at Islamic theology proper. I'll try to put it together in a nice systematic package for you uh, so you can see, first of all, the internal rationale of Islamic theology, but also start to think about some of the problems, we might say big problems associated with Islamic theology. Then the third week, we will look at uh, the question on how we as Christians and as American Christians should think about Islam. But today we're going to, or I'm going to paint with a very broad brush uh, looking at the Muslim worldview. First, I need to though, I need to begin by defining uh, what I mean by Muslim. This is a big debate out in the public realm. You know, what is Islam and what's a Muslim? I'm going to just take the traditional definition of Islam and traditional definition of Muslim in particular that's advanced by any Legitimate Islamic organization. A person who is a Muslim who is by definition one who submits to God and submits every aspect of their life to God. Now, by God, I do not mean the, Christ, the Judeo Christian God. Um, I've, I've done a lot of talks. Some of you have heard me talk before, and I used to use the term Allah. I'm tired of using the term Allah. So I'm just going to use God just for convenience sake. But please understand, I'm not associating the Christian God with the God of Islam, the false God of Islam. But um, in thinking about the Muslim worldview, the way the Muslim views the world, the way the Muslim views history, uh, one has to, if they're to understand how Muslims see things, go to the sources. Traditional-minded or conservative or mainstream Muslims do not order their view of the world around facts. They are, we could call them, logocentric. Their worldview is determined by a body of texts. In many ways, Christianity is logocentric when it comes to uh, theology. um, Our worldview is shaped by the biblical text. At the same time, we recognize that the biblical text leaves lots of unanswered questions about history and uh, science and things like that. And so when it comes to those questions, we order our view of the world around Scientific or factual research. Sometimes that sort of research contradicts uh, biblical understanding of things, and there's a lot of tension there. Uh, but in the Muslim mind, the factual world doesn't so much matter when they're trying to understand and articulate the world. What matters is what the texts say. The first in, or the most important text for a Muslim is, of course, the Quran. I don't know how many of you have read it, um, It's an interesting read, to say the least. It is not, when you open up its pages, you don't expect to find a chronological narrative uh, that parallels perhaps the the biblical narrative. Um, It's a sort of hodgepodge of of statements and anecdotes about what Muhammad said and did on certain occasions. In reading the Quran, um, it's rather difficult for those who aren't uh, haven't been educated on how a Muslim reads the Qur'an. If you open up the Qur'an, uh, there are two major distinctions that are made in the Qur'an between verses or chapters that come from the early period of Muhammad's life and chapters that come from the later period. And so when you open up the Qur'an, you can easily find contradictions in its texts. For example, uh, regarding uh, the consumption of wine, In some passages in the Quran, one in particular, it says it's okay to to drink wine. Maybe my favorite passage in the Quran, Um, (laughs) if there is one. Uh, But in other places you can find there's an absolute blanket prohibition on the, the consumption of wine. And the way Muslim exegetes, that is, scholars who interpret the Quranic text resolve that contradiction is they, they've developed what they call the doctrine of abrogation, which itself is taught in the Quran, chapter 2 primarily, uh, that says that which is, was allegedly revealed through Muhammad later in his life, if it's found in contradiction to earlier passages, the later passage rules out the earlier stuff. So if you go into the Quran, chapter 29, 46, you'll find this interesting passage where Muhammad tells uh, his his few uh, Muslim followers that he's gathered together when he's living in Mecca, he tells them, "When you come across Jews and Christians or people of the book, don't debate with them. Rather, deal with them, deal with them kindly, and tell them that their God and our God is one." Interesting, kind of postmodern, maybe. Um, but then, if you read another passage in the Quran, for example, chapter nine, verse twenty-nine, it says, "Kill the people of the book, or kill Christians and Jews." unless, of course, they're willing to submit to Islam. How are these contradictions uh, resolved? Well, chapter 29, verse 46, the earlier one I quoted to you, actually, even though it's closer to the end of the Quran, is believed by Muslims the world over to be an earlier revelation. So it's ruled out by (laughs) chapter 9, verse 29. Uh, But the Quran itself, for a Muslim... Most Muslims, uh, 90% of the Muslim world, the Sunnis, believe is not just an inspired text that men wrote under inspiration from God. Uh, The Quran is God's eternal speech. So if you have a copy of the Quran that has an Arabic script, that script itself, if it's read or pronounced or recited properly, it's, it's as if God is speaking from all eternity, so these, there are many scholars out there, Muslim and others, who say that if we take the Quran in its context, for example, the, the injunction to kill Christians and Jews, we can just understand that as an injunction for the 620s and 630s during Muhammad's life. Well, because the Quran is God's eternal speech, it's, it's applicable today, too. That's the way Muslims have, or Sunni Muslims have always understood those sorts of passages in the, in the Quran itself. Now, when was the Quran put together? Uh, it used to be, up until about 30 years ago, for about 100 years, European scholars especially were uh, trying to amass evidence. And it seemed that they were quite successful in amassing evidence to suggest that the Quran developed over the course of a couple centuries, from the time that Muhammad died in 632 AD, uh, probably up to the 8th century. Uh, There are a whole host of Quranic manuscripts in libraries scattered across the Middle East and also Europe uh, that show a text, despite what Muslims claim, that does seem to have developed. Uh, However, back in the 1970s, late 1970s, 1979, and 1980, a German scholar was invited down to the Yemen and was handed over a whole bunch of manuscripts that were bound together. Um, And over the course of the years, as he carefully peeled them apart, what he found were Quranic manuscripts that date to the 7th century, um, probably late 7th century. But we, it, these texts indicate to us that the Quran was put together in the 7th century like Muslim tradition tells us. The interesting thing about these manuscripts, though, is when you, when you look at them, you can tell from these manuscripts that the Quranic text has, in fact, evolved. When it was first written, it said one thing. And then, in, because uh, parchment is hard to come by in the 7th century, rather than getting new parchment and burning the old, they erased the earlier text and wrote over it. The difference in the text, it's, it's hard to, to say just how different the original text and the text that eventually uh, became canonized is, but uh, scholars are working on that right now. Just about two or three years ago, Uh, German scholars in particular were were supposed to have published a critical edition of the Quran that would draw attention to the fact that the text itself, even though Muslims claim it has been perfectly preserved since the 7th century to today, all the facts show or evidence that the text itself is corrupt in some way. Uh, That was supposed to come out, I believe, in 2008, because of political pressure, and you can probably assume what kind of political pressure uh, the publication debate or de- date has been pushed off into the future, indefinitely into the future. Last date I heard was 2025. Um, <laughs> they're probably waiting to see what happens uh, in, in the Muslim world. Um, alongside the Quran, which is the most important text for a Muslim, and you all know what happens when you mess with this text, for example, Terry Jones down in Florida. I believe it was just a couple weeks ago. Now had a, uh, a hearing for the Quran and found it guilty of inciting murder and, and violence and everything else. Uh, to prove that it doesn't incite murder and violence, the Muslim world erupted in mu- uh, murder and violence. Um, I think it's, it's rather tragic, though. About I, the last number I heard was over 250 people have been killed or or significantly injured as a result of the protests, especially out of Afghanistan. Um, uh, both sides are, are if we have to place blame both sides are the blame Terry Jones should have known this sort of thing would happen he has every right to do it absolutely um, but uh, that, that uh, UN workers I'm not a fan of the UN but that they were killed as a result of this is, is rather tragic but it sort of amplifies the times we're in um, and just how careful as much as I don't want to be careful with Islam one has to be uh, the second major body of texts that's only second in authority to the Quran, is generally known as the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, which you could translate tradition. And it it comprises a number of texts. Uh, The biographies of Muhammad, the earliest one we have, the actual manuscript we have, dates to about 200 years after Muhammad was dead. So in the middle of the 9th century, it's not very reliable, but still, in a Muslim view of things, it's certainly very reliable. In fact, it's, it's the text they will use to help understand the context of the Quran. Uh, that's available in English translation, uh, just simply called The Life of Muhammad. Uh, a, you know, and the original author was Ibn Ishaq. Uh, alongside the biographies, probably an even more important tradition are known as the Hadith. The Hadith are a, a large... Uh, collection of texts that purport to contain things Muhammad said and did when he wasn't under direct inspiration from God. But because Muhammad's a prophet of God, and Muhammad is allegedly the most perfect man, uh, that those anecdotes you find in there are binding on a Muslim today too. Especially when it comes to their ethics, if you could call it that. Uh, and the development of law and other things in is the Islamic tradition. Uh, there are a number of different compilers of the, the Hadith. Uh, the largest collection, the most respected uh, collection, is from a man named al-Bukhari. I think it's about nine volumes. It takes up about this much space on my shelf. Uh, and if you read it, it's fascinating. It tells you the intimate details of how Muhammad responded to certain questions, how he behaved um, what his instructions for, were for the, Muslim, the developing Muslim state at the time to go off to war. Every little detail um, is given uh, concerning Muhammad's life in the Hadith. And it's pr- especially from the Hadith that Muslim jurists or lawyers and judges throughout the course of Islamic history have, will derive most of what's known as the Sharia, Islamic law. So it's an extremely important text to understand. It's boring as all get-up to read, um, but extremely important for understanding the, the Islamic worldview, especially if you want to get to understand Islamic ethics. In fact, if you were concerning Islamic ethics, if you were to ask a good Muslim uh, what their source for ethics was or what their, you know, who they put on, uh, on a pedestal in and, and following uh, concerning their ethical disposition a Muslim will tell you it is Muhammad. Ethics or morality isn't developed on an individualistic basis or on the basis of reason necessarily. It's, based, it's, it's developed around following the example of Muhammad. Um, if you want to read a less cumbersome biography of Muhammad, uh, but a biography that discloses Muhammad warts and all, uh, there's one out there by a man named Robert Spencer just simply titled, uh, the Truth About Muhammad, the subtitle is The Founder of the World's Most Intolerant Religion. That'll tell you a bit about the um, the content. But this biography is extremely useful because there are a whole host of biographies out there that draw from the sirah, the original biographies of Muhammad's life, and the hadith, uh, that sugarcoat things. I'm, in particular, I think of Karen Armstrong. I don't know if you've known the name, but she's a, a former nun who has left Christianity, but is, has apparently become an authority on all things religion. And her uh, biography of Muhammad is entitled, Muhammad, a prophet for our time. Wherein she, she writes, a, it's a fair, it's, it follows the traditional chronology of Muhammad's life, but fails uh, throughout the entire book to actually bring in evidence from the earliest sources we have. It's just simply, she has, she understands the basic timeline as Muslims see it, but then colors things such that Muhammad comes off like an enlightened, rational, uh, pacifist. Um, in fact, I was in a mosque, uh, not praying, obviously, uh, several years ago, back before the elections. The, um, and a Muslim scholar from the University of Notre Dame was was at the, at the pulpit preaching to the Muslim community there. And he was encouraging Muslims, first of all, of course, to vote for uh, President now President Obama, but second of all, encouraging them to spread the good news about Muhammad. And uh, he told the Muslim community or that was there, do not give them Ibn Ishaq's biography, the earliest one. Because it tells you everything about Muhammad, how he married a six-year-old, um, how he had, perhaps he did it himself, or perhaps instructed his generals uh, to cut the heads off of seven to 900 Jews towards the end of his life, and other things. He says, Instead, give them something like Karen Armstrong's biography. Uh, That will, and he didn't use the word entice, but that's what he meant, entice them towards taking a closer look at at Islam. Uh, It's Robert Spencer's biography that I'd strongly recommend. If you want to, first of all, understand the life of Muhammad, but also, more importantly, how it affects how serious, traditional-minded Muslims uh, order their ethical, uh, moral life. Uh, There are other sources that are part of the Sunnah. Uh, Muslim scholars all disagree on uh, which ones are more reliable versus others. Uh, Early histories of Islam, uh, early reports of all the Islamic conquests comprise the Sunnah as well. But if you want to sort of get a a broad understanding of how Muslims see things, you've got to read the Quran uh, the way Muslims read it, and also the biography and the Hadith. Um, Good luck. Uh, it's not the easiest stuff. There are some Muslims today, uh, a few, uh, some will say it's more, uh, that say these sources are certainly important, but uh, we Muslims also raise up reason, independent reason. And when we approach our texts, if what we find that in them isn't reasonable by today's standards, or to just basic common sense, then they'll reinterpret the text or ignore aspects of the text. Uh, there's an early precedent for this in Islamic history known as Mu'tazilism. It's Islamic rationalism that actually raises reason, in a sense, over their texts. Uh, but Mu'tazilism died in the ninth century. It's, some are trying to revive it today. But it doesn't reach a very a hospitable audience when it's, when it's uh, taught in a Muslim context. For example, a man named Abdulaziz Sakadina, who works at or teaches at the University of Virginia in Arlington, wrote a book that almost has a laughable title, uh, entitled The Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism. Um, it was published by a reputable publisher, uh, Oxford University Press, I believe. Um, and the text itself, it's, it's a fascinating read, because what uh, he argues is that uh, Islam, is like the rest of the world, is moving into the 21st century, this so-called postmodern era. And using the tools of postmodernism, uh says, we should deconstruct classical Islam, because it's a historical construct. And like a good postmodernist, he says, let's deconstruct it, and in its place, build up a new Islam uh, that's, that's tailored for the 21st century in a globalized world. Uh, sounds interesting, to be sure. Some people have placed a lot of hope in him. In fact, he gets a lot of our tax dollars via, vis-a-vis the, um, the uh, Department of State. He was integral in constructing the Constitution for the new nation of Iraq, Um, has spoken at the White House, the Pentagon, and things like that. The problem is, though, when he goes to the... Actually, he's not allowed in the Muslim world, really, anymore, unless he's under the protection of the United States. When he went back there in the 1990s to promote a more tolerant, um, friendly, westernized Islam, the result was he received a hukum, which is sort of like a fatwa. You're all familiar with that term, probably. Hookham, though, is sort of a general prohibition. He's not allowed to teach Islam to Muslims. But the, the, the also, you can read it online in English translation. It goes on and says, but you're more than welcome to teach the West this. One wonders why. My suspicion, um, unlike uh, Dr. Van Voorhis, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but my suspicion <laughs> is that... He's trying to dress down, or what, what, this, what he does is dresses down Islam such that when we, we look at his exposition of it, it doesn't pose too much of a challenge to us, because okay. it comes off like a um, sort of a deistic form of Islam. And if there's a historic, real, historical religion in America, it's uh, certainly Christianity has been along all along and was integral in our founding, uh, but de- deism as well. And that's, that's how he, he portrays Islam. Now, these texts, and we're kind of coming very close to the end of our time, and I haven't even gotten one-third of the way through my outline. Um, These texts, we can pick up here next week, though. These texts give a very interesting picture of how the world came to be and what has happened throughout the course of of the history of the world. Um, In many ways, the narrative you see in these texts does not dovetail or impinge on the biblical narrative, but it does in many ways parallel it. Not to suggest that uh, there's a lot of room for bridge building and things like that. I'm actually, over the course of the last couple of years, come to the realization that really bridges can't be built. Um, uh, but there is a parallel narrative. For example, starting from the very beginning, in the Quran and also in Muslim tradition, they, you, one could say that they hold, they have always held to uh, very strong into a theistic worldview. A worldview that says the only thing that really necessarily exists is God. Everything else that we see and the things we know that exist but we can't see, that is the unseen creation, uh, jinn, not Bombay sapphire, but uh, uh, these jinn, genies, um, uh, bodiless creatures. And also angels are part of this unseen creation. But all of this is, according to a Muslim worldview, contingent upon God's created act- activity. And in the Muslim worldview, God def- at, did at one point in time, from nothing, create the entire universe and everything within it. Uh, interestingly, though, right at the beginning of creation, and the, the, the Quran itself is con- is contradictory, on how creation unfolded. In some places it'll say it took six days, other places two days, um, and there are Muslim scholars out there who argue or try to uh, bring in Darwinian evolution and, and reinterpret the Quran. They have the same sorts of debates that Christians have over, the, over creation. But at the very beginning of creation, you read in the Quran in a couple places that God decided to create human beings, to create Adam and his consort, Eve. Eve's not named in the Quran, but Muslims, Muslim tradition says that Adam's wife was Eve. And the telling of the creation of, of human beings is really interesting, because what you find in the Quran is that Adam and Eve are created and placed in paradise. Only paradise isn't on earth. It's in a, a second realm or the second level of heaven. There are seven layers to heaven. Uh, in Islam, and Adam and Eve are placed in paradise in heaven. They're told, kind of, or like the biblical narrative, that they're not to. They can do whatever they want, but they're not to eat from a tree in the middle of, the, of, of paradise. They go ahead and do it. Um, God comes down to them and asks them, "What? What have they done?" And I don't recall that uh, Adam blames Eve, and then by extension blames God, uh, but. God condemns them or punishes them by causing them to fall from paradise down to earth. The fall in Islam is not a fall into sin. It's a physical, literal fall from paradise down to earth. But once Adam and Eve land on earth or hit earth... According to the Quran, God in His mercy decides to start revealing Himself or br- bring guidance to human beings, starting with Adam. And this begins the long lineage uh, known as prophethood in Islam. From the time of Adam up until the time of Muhammad in the seventh, well, late 6th, early 7th century, uh, Muslim theologians tell us that God has always revealed Himself to and through Prophets, beginning with Adam. In fact, they, will, they say there have been over 120, maybe 124,000 prophets over the course of his, the history between Adam and Muhammad. Every one of these prophets, from Adam uh, to Noah to Moses to David to all the other Old Testament prophets to John the Baptist to Jesus and then through Muhammad, all taught essentially the same thing. That is, there are there is no god worthy of attaching yourself to or worshiping but Allah. And moreover, that over the course of history, these prophets also taught that not only is there only just one god, who's one in essence and one in person, but there has always been a, this lineage of prophets. That all people, if you are to be a good Muslim or a good submitter to God, uh, you will obey. And so in the Muslim narrative or Muslim worldview, they will at least pay lip service to Adam, Noah, Jesus, John the Baptist. And they will say, we believe in all these prophets. But in the Muslim view of things, the message of all the earlier prophets, we can't really know what it is because it's all been corrupted. Um, According to the Quran, only four prophets before Muhammad actually left behind texts. In fact, one of them was lost. Abraham and his scrolls have been lost. Uh, But Moses put together the Torah. That is at least in name authoritative. However, it's been corrupted. Um, David brought the Psalms or put together the Psalms. Jesus brought the gospel. Their message, though, has all been corrupted. The texts themselves have been corrupted, so they're not really reliable. The only prophet in practice... And the only book uh, that is reliable is Muhammad and the Quran. And Muhammad's example, his deeds, his his speech recorded in the hadith and the biographies and the Quran provide the lens through which they view earlier history. We, we're actually at the end of our time, um, but we have about ten minutes of For for questions, I'm going to stop here. Uh, I haven't gotten to where I wanted to go, but if there are questions, we'll pick up it here when we we, uh, meet next week. Otherwise, I'll go on forever and ever. Yes, ma'am.
0: How was the the, uh, Bible corrupted according to Islamic faith?
1: It depends who you ask. (laughs) That's always the answer. Um, Historically, early in Muslim history, the first 200 years, they didn't really have a well-defined definition of what they call tahrif uh, corruption. They, they believed that, by and large, that Jews and Christians just uh, misinterpreted the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospel. But once uh, Christians and Jews were encountered by the claims of Islam and started asking the question, well, can you show us where, we're, where we've misinterpreted, then you get this development about the 9th or 10th century that claims the actual text itself has been corrupted. Uh, for example, one classic passage uh, is John fourteen sixteen. There's this view in Islam that earlier prophets always predicted future prophets. And so Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and 18, where Moses says a prophet will come after me from the tribe of Israel who will be greater than me. Um, Jews have misinterpreted that, or Christians have misinterpreted that to, to suggest Jesus. Muslims say, no, this refers to Muhammad. In John fourteen sixteen, in the Greek text, you have Jesus uh, uh, telling his disciples he can, he's going to petition his father to send another one like him. That is the paraclete, or the paracleton in Greek, the Holy Spirit. Uh, who will who will guide the, the apostles in all truth and cause them to remember everything that he he taught them in his earthly ministry? According to Muslim tradition, Parakleiton in the original Greek was actually originally Parakleiton, just a one consonant difference. And if you translate, they claim Ahmadidat, the most or the most vocal one who who did this argued that Paracliton, translated out of Greek into Arabic, is Ahmed. Uh, Quran 61, verse 6, has the Muslim prophet Jesus saying to uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, Behold, I give you good tidings of a prophet who will come after me, whose name will be Ahmed. Ahmed is just another name for Muhammad. It's, it means the blessed. Um, Muhammad sort of means one who is blessed. So that's that's kind of how most understand it. The text itself has been corrupted. Now, when you push them on this and say you claim the earliest manuscripts or the earliest text, the earliest gospel say, says Paracliton, Do you have any evidence for this? Are uh, they fold. There isn't any, of course. But uh, it's a, a, a an apologetic or a polemical tradition that. Uh, Evolved over time as they, they met the claims of Christians or the, the questions of Christians, so really no foundation for it
0: okay. do they use the same um, standards that they say our scripture is corrupt against their own Oh of course not
1: of course not um, Of course not. Uh, today, just to kind of push this a little further, today, what you 'll find amongst uh, Muslim apologists at the at the the University of California campuses associated with Muslim student unions and Muslim student associations, is they will use contemporary Bible scholarship, liberal Bible scholarship or higher critical Bible scholarship, and say, see, even these contemporary Christian scholars like Bart Ehrman, who's no Christian, by the way, but even they're saying the same things the Muslim tradition has said for almost 1,400 years now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And are Muslims required to read the, the New Testament called the Injil?
1: The, in theory, they believe in the Injil. They have to say, we believe in the Injil, and we believe in the prophet Isa or Jesus. Um, but if you ask them what the Injil is, they'll say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually redactions from the original Injil, the Q, if you will. Or some will say... Uh, The Gospel of Barnabas, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's a 15th century forgery, um, but done probably penned by a Dominican monk who converted to Islam in in Istanbul, uh, concocted this this gospel. Um, They'll use that and say, this was the original Injil, and if you read it, you can get it in English translation, Jesus comes off like a prophet of Islam, predicting a, a prophet named Muhammad. The, the interesting thing is that this Gospel of Barnabas is based off of two manuscripts from the, I think they date to the 15th or 16th century, um, in Italian and Spanish. When it was, they were first discovered in the early 20th century, a big preface was published alongside the translation, a hundred pages almost, that prove these things are just outright forgeries from the 15th century. Uh, now the Gospel of Barnabas, though, is published by Muslim publishing companies uh, without that preface, so it's just the text. And there are a whole host of Muslims out there who think this is the original Injil. Um, and because their ideology or worldview trumps facts, it, you get, it's really tough to tell them, this, we, just know, we know that this is a forgery, why would you even agree to it? I mean, for them, they're searching for the original Injil, and, and this fits the bill. Because of course it corresponds with the Quran, and so therefore it must be true. Even though all the facts say otherwise.
2: Yes, sir. I was wondering, from a historical standpoint, non-Muslim, was Muhammad born into some religion, or or what was it? Zoroastrian? uh, It it seems
1: very likely. The best that a historian can claim is that Muhammad is born in a polytheistic milieu. He's born in Mecca around 570 AD. Um, Everybody at Mecca was a polytheist. There may have been some... uh, Nomadic Jews who th- traveled through there. Um, but the Kaaba, you know, that big uh, black cube like structure in Mecca today, that was b- around back then. They claim Adam, Abraham, and then Adam before him actually built that. Uh, but in Muhammad's day and age, that was there, and it, it uh, had about 360 idols that all the Arab tribes worshipped. And Muhammad's tribe was responsible for, or they were the custodians of, of the Kaaba. So it seems very likely, even though Muslim historians will say, no, is uh, different. He was by nature a monotheist. He believed that there was only one God and kind of thought his traditional tribal religion was foolish. Probably polytheistic. He encounters the claims of Judaism and Christianity, loosely conceived, uh, when he's uh, probably a teenager because he would accompany his uncle on trips from Mecca all the way up to Damascus and uh, uh, it seems quite likely that uh, he encountered the claims of monotheism, that there's only one God. So, but what he was growing up, it's you know probably polytheist, or at least it was in that context. So, so his message that there is no God but one God, that is Allah, um, is really quite radical in, uh, in Muhammad's day and age. In fact, it will lead to persecution of the early Muslim community. You probably will discuss the different forms of uh, Muslim the Islam faith, would you? Absolutely. Yeah, next week. That's sorry. If we can get through the rest of this week's <laughs> um t- Getting a little more personal, there are many universities that have uh, departments of Middle East studies and you probably communicate or meet periodically with other professors in that uh, I in those department. I try not to, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I'm wondering across it, I've heard of, uh, that there are a lot of them that are perverted towards Islam uh... what is your finding um,
1: generally speaking about the faculties in our major public universities in our ivy league universities um, aren't comprised entirely of muslims but those who are non-muslims working in those departments are almost to the t they soft pedal things they're not um, First of all, their funding, lots of these places, their funding comes from Saudi Arabia. So they have to, they can't exactly say things that perhaps could cause funding to be withdrawn. Um, by and large, um, I, I can only name about six men and women out there in the, the major public universities, research universities, where uh, their approach to scholarship with regard to Islam historically or ideologically is oriented around facts and what they find in evidence. Everything else is sort of this glossed-over version of this of of Islam that doesn't correspond to the historical record. So the first 100 years of Islam after Muhammad dies in 632, uh, you get a Muslim state based in the Arabian Peninsula, all of a sudden explodes or expands and becomes an empire that stretches from Spain um, all the way to, to the subcontinent of India. How'd that happen? Um, the historical record, all the evidence that we have, and there's not a whole bunch of it, but you know, maybe about sixty inscriptions and small documents that, uh, from eyewitnesses that, that saw this said this was all by brute military force. I mean, that's most people have known that for some time. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. And then, But then, if you read the the literature out there, uh, there's one book that's written on a popular level called destiny disrupted and it 's a story of the expansion of Islam and, and dovetailed into world history argues that the, the cause of the expansion is that as it doesn 't mention anything about um, campaigns, military campaigns, or anything, but people recognize, saw the truth of Islam and willingly embraced it. baloney <laughs> not true, but that's yeah that 's what you get out there, and it 's a problem, it really is. Um, in the in scholarly communities, there are all these professional organizations. Uh, Middle East Studies Association was the the one that the, the elite one for a time, but it is so um, corrupted by politics, leftist, progressivist interpretations of things that a new association was just formed uh, two years ago now. Association for the Study of Middle East and Africa. Um, lots of people are members of this. But um, if, if you put this on your resume and you want to go to Harvard or something, uh, you, you won't get a job there. Um, so that's how politicized things have become and how, um, how much the, especially the Saudi Arabians, have a control over what's said in our academy our academies. Yes, sir.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you have the mic? Okay. Yeah. So, just want to make
0: sure I'm clear on this. So, within the within the chronic text, something written in chapter nine can be superseded by something written in chapter twenty-five. Twenty-nine. Yeah. Twenty-nine. Mm-hmm. But it's all eternal.
1: Primary, yes. For the most part, generally speaking, yes.
0: Yeah. All right. So that yeah. right there is an oxymoron, right? Because if if verse chapters of verse nine are eternal. And chapters of verse 25, oh, but, return. Good point, yes. Then it's... Yeah.
2: Okay,
0: just want to make sure... I'm yeah, sorry. but no,
1: the way that's interpreted, or, or the way that's explained, is that uh, if you look at Muhammad's life, there are two major periods. One in Mecca, where he's a nobody. He's a young upstart, a naive guy preaching monotheism. There is no God but, but Allah. And Islam, the small Muslim community, is persecuted pretty harshly, apparently, early on. And so... Um, because of that, that's the case. The, the claim is that Allah, in his mercy and wisdom, saw that he couldn't reveal the fullness of Islam in that context because it would have caused way too much of a commotion and probably Muhammad and the Muslims would have been killed. And so he enticed it's like Mormonism, entices people along until what's called the Medinan period, 622 to 632, uh, where Muhammad becomes effectively the governor and warlord um, where he has all control, he doesn't need to, to appease anybody, doesn't need any allies, and the fullness of Islam is revealed um, such, to such an extent that at the, la- the tail end of Muhammad's life, the Quran claims, chapter 5, verse 3, after Muhammad summed up his mission. Um, On this day, uh, I have perfected my religion. That's God speaking allegedly, and it is called Al-Islam. Uh, so it's, it's progressively revealed and finalized with Muhammad in 632 AD. So, but yeah, it is an oxy. I, I've never, I don't know if I've ever thought that, that thought, but that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, we are way past time. On, next week, we'll look at the rest of the story after Muhammad, where the, the whole world outside the domain of Islam is seen as the domain of war, domain of jihad, into which Muslims are uh, required to expand into. So we'll look at that, and then we'll look at the theology of Islam proper uh, next week.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills, and uh, be right back and listen to another lecture from Dr. Francisco. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you see heard on this edition scene, it's radio. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there. Hire Christian. We will be right back.
2: No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
0: <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. of marty python's flying circus church would like to again apologize normally we try to do parody here at marty python's flying circus church unfortunately the church continues to just parody itself case in point rabbi michael zeitler's anointed shofar cd this is a real commercial
2: When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi. Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness, and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the entire judgment's about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today
0: Warning, Uh, despite what Brian McLaren might tell you, uh, Muslims are not your Christian brothers. Seems kind of basic, but we live in weird days. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important teaching radio outreach ministry to you and to the world. And uh, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do that by clicking on the donate button. Or you can, you know, if you want to just, you know, do that on a regular basis, you could do that too. <laughs> we click on the donate button and uh, you can uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And I would like to thank all of you that support us, uh, again, from the bottom of my heart. It, it, it really, truly means a lot to us that you uh, make it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing here. So thank you very much. All right, now, uh, next part of the uh, program today, this is going to be a little bit shorter than the first lecture. That's just the way these things got done. And the name of this one is uh, Islamic Theology Part 1 by Dr. Adam Francisco. Here we go. Uh, Last
1: week, though, we stopped uh, by talking about Muhammad and how essentially for a Muslim, in their worldview, as they look back at history, they see this long train of prophets, starting with Adam, who have all essentially taught the same thing when it comes to religion, uh, but it all climaxes and comes to an end with Muhammad. Uh, The Quran, in chapter 33, verse 40, says that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets Muhammad is not better than any of the, of the other prophets in terms of the the quality of his teachings or the the, the character of his life. They, Muslims do believe all prophets, past from Adam to Muhammad, are all essentially the same thing, and all they're they're required to, per their beliefs, to believe in all the prophets. They say the, the interesting thing is, though. When a Muslim refers to the prophet Jesus or the prophet Moses, they're referring to the Islamic, not the historic biblical prophets. It's sort of a rewriting of history, if you will. When Muhammad, over the last 10 years of Muhammad's life, from 622 to 632, Islam, we talked just briefly last week about how Islam morphs a bit. It becomes much uh, less religious, and much more political, uh, militaristic, and legalistic. By the end of uh, Muhammad's life in 632 AD, the whole, you, Muslim theologians argue the whole body of God's law had been revealed uh, through Muhammad's words, but also in his deeds. And so when Muhammad dies, it's seen as the, the closing of God's revelation through the prophets. And in subsequent decades and even centuries, as the Islamic, empire, or the Islamic world begins to consolidate its control, but for our purposes expand tremendously, especially within 100 years, uh, Muslims will work at putting together a codifying Islamic theology and law from what they remember Muhammad saying and doing. Um, one of the interesting things about the Muslim worldview when it comes to the way they view History post Muhammad is that they 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 view the 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 entire globe as being par, comprised of a, the realm of infidelity and the realm of ignorance jahiliya, as uh, Saeed Kutub used to put it, a famous uh, first half, a little more than the first half of the 20th century uh, Muslim ideologue. And after Muhammad dies, the Muslim community. It doesn't take a new shape, but its belligerence begins to increase. Because just before Muhammad died, he left instructions for the Muslim state there in the Arabian Peninsula that they are, just like he was given the the mission to, they were to pursue the world, to fight the world, as the text puts it. And the the Arabic term is kitāl, which means slay or kill. Uh, Until the world confesses there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. So the message, If some folks will say that the message of Islam is for the Arabian context. The message of Islam in a Muslim mind is universal. Islam, not just its theology, but its, its law and its political ideology is universal. It's for the entire world. And the instrument, if you will that's used to promote the pursuit of the rest of the world is this term that's now become a household word, an Arabic term um, that we now use in English uh, known as jihad. Was first, um, this, it's usually referred to as a duty in Islam. Um, it's first given to, this duty is first given to the Muslim community just after Muhammad made his way up to Medina and this new era of Islam emerges. And in chapter two of the Quran, uh, Muhammad speaks to the Muslim community that they are to fight the world or to fight for Allah's cause, even though you may not like it. On this day, I have imposed fighting upon you. You are to fight and pursue uh, the world. The term jihad, however, literally means struggle. Uh, Most of the time in the Quran, it's connected with physical violence. Um, and over the course of the history of Islam, jihad has always been associated with, not with self-defense but offense to advance the, the agenda and to push the political borders of Islam. Uh, jihad can mean, though, things like a cultural struggle. It doesn't necessarily require force or a political or a legal struggle. So when you hear the term jihad, it doesn't always just mean physical violence. It could, even though this may seem like it's not as threatening, it's actually even more threatening, the the softer side of Islam. Uh, Not too long ago, uh, just a few years back, when a group uh, known as the Holy Land Foundation was put on trial for funneling several million dollars to Hamas so they could buy rockets and lob them into Israel, a document was discovered that was penned several decades earlier in America. Uh, it was put together by Muslim leaders, leaders who now make up the leadership of all these various Muslim organizations you hear about, that talked about the plans for the Muslim Ummah or the community in America. And it said that, basically said that the, the, the goals of Muslims in America uh, should be not to engage in physical, militaristic jihad because they just don't have the numbers or the, the weapons and, and the, the finances. Uh, but uh, as the document unfolds, it talks about how there's another way of going about the transformation of America, Um, and that is through this cultural jihad. Change the American culture such that they do not see Islam as any threat so that public opinion on Islam is not uh, belligerent, but rather sees Islam as just another part of the American landscape. In other words, to bring down defenses uh, uh, against the rise of legal and political Islam. Uh, and the term, though, used in that document is cultural jihad. Now, I'm not suggesting that America is, is going to be Islamized in 10 years, or maybe even 20 years. Who who really knows? Like I'm fond of saying, like Muhammad, I'm no prophet. Uh, but... Uh, in though in the muslim the muslim community especially in muslim organizations those that are political and legal in nature especially that is their goal whether they achieve it or not is who knows it's largely up to us actually if they achieve it or not but um uh that is their stated goal not some right-wing conspiracy theorist like myself up here telling you that's their goal that's that's in in the the documents themselves um Going back, though, a bit in history, just after Muhammad dies, as Muslims start thinking about Islamic statecraft, they start to develop an interesting, to say the least, view of the world that sees the world as comprising uh, essentially two domains or two spheres of influence. Uh, one sphere is the domain of Islam. Uh, I've got the Arabic in your outline. It's Darul Islam. And that. Region is defined classically as lands that are comprised of a majority Muslim population. Christians and Jews can exist in these populations as second class citizens, but the majority is Islamic. The governance is Islamic. The legal system is Islamic. The economic system, uh, the ethical system, and everything else is Islamic. And the way the earliest, in fact, the earliest. Uh, uh, Booklet or manual on foreign policy in Islam, which was put together around the end of the eighth century, um, simply called uh, the CR uh, International Law in Islam, says that that read that domain or that sphere outside of the domain of Islam is construed as the domain of war, Darul Harb, or some some documents put it uh, this way, Darul Jihad, the domain of the struggle, into which the domain of Islam is. Uh, commanded by God via Muhammad to expand. That's just in the historical literature. Um, And throughout the course of the centuries, as Islam expanded and sometimes contracted, you see these terms being used over and over again. But over time, you also see some new terms introduced. And contemporary Muslims will use these as a way to uh, try to dress down the belligerence of Islam. And they say, and they're right, it's true, that there have been some classic Muslim thinkers who say it's not the world is not just comprised of two domains, but there's a third domain, the domain of peace or the domain of the treaty, in between the domain of Islam and the domain of war. Um, as if to suggest that there, this is a perpetual domain where Muslims and everybody else can live in perpetual peace. Interestingly, though, if you look at these documents closely, where the term "domain of peace" as a third domain is brought up, they always the the, the thinkers who are, are concocting this political theory see the domain of peace as simply a temporary domain. Uh, the theory is that if an Islamic uh, state doesn't have enough power, military, political, or otherwise. To uh, be successful in expanding its reach, they can negotiate a peace treaty with their, the, those regions in, or those, those powers in the domain of war. Uh, however, that treaty can only last ten years at the most. And if the Muslim, in the sources themselves, if the Muslim state amasses enough wealth and military power before that treaty expires, it is its incumbent upon that state to begin hostility again. That's just in the literature. If you want to see how jihad and the struggle to, as the Quran puts it, advance the cause of Islam such that by the end of history, as Quran 933 puts it, Islam triumphs over all other systems of belief, Uh, the best book is in your bibliography under Islamic theology, law, and politics, uh, written by David Cook. The title is simply Understanding Jihad. Uh, Published, oddly enough, by University of California Press, based out of Berkeley. Um, But what the scholar did was, he teaches at Rice University, and I have no idea where he's allied, but he's just a good, genuine scholar. He he compiled every text ever written uh, in the classic Islamic languages, so Arabic, Persian, and Urdu, from the 7th century up until present. And read through them all. And distilled the tried to distill what jihad has always meant for Muslim authors, writing to, in, to their own people, not to Western people that they're trying to, to confuse. And he says ninety nine percent of the times, uh, jihad is construed in Islamic literature as offensive, not even self defensive, but actually offensive to advance the cause of Islam. There was one exception he found, written in Persian, written by a man many of you are familiar with, he died about 20 years ago now, um, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who wrote a book entitled The Greater Jihad, um, where he argued that the best jihad, the ideal struggle for the individual Muslim, is to struggle with their, their passions and their, their constant temptation to sin. But if you read this document closely, David Cook arguments, while there are some out there who argue this is what jihad should mean today, he says if you read it closely, you see that Ayatollah Khomeini said the only way this sort of jihad could take place, though, is if the whole world is Islamized, because the lesser jihad, the physical, political, legal jihad will be over, and then finally the whole world can work at struggling with its passions um, and correcting its moral life. Um, The the bifurcation of the world into the two domains, domain of Islam and domain of war, you will find that there are Muslims out there who say, ah, we've never believed that, or I don't believe it at least. Um, However, uh, one Muslim scholar, a man named Tariq Ramadan, sometimes known as the Martin Luther of Islam, uh, for a long time was forbidden from entering the U.S. up until about two years ago when the Secretary uh, Secretary of State simply wrote a letter to the immigration board telling them, you will let this man in the country. Um, He was forbidden from entering the U.S. because several thousand dollars of his his own personal wealth went to Hamas. Now he's allowed in the country, comes comes here and lectures. He wrote a book called Western Muslims and the Future of Islam. And he actually admits, and this is 2005, that Muslims have historically, even to present, seen the world through this bifurcated lens, domain of Islam and domain of war. Interestingly, though, and I know I've said interestingly about four times now, I'll try to stop, Um, Tariq Ramadan says we shouldn't see the world this way anymore. Uh, Because if you look around, he says there is no domain of Islam anymore. There's no region in the world where there's a majority Muslim population and you have a bona fide legitimate Islamic government. At one time there was, the Taliban had one. But even in in places like Egypt, even Saudi Arabia, those regimes that look Islamic aren't purely Islamic. There's no uh, permission given in the Quran or the traditions for a king or for international trade. And so Ramadan and others argue that uh, the whole Muslim world itself has collapsed. But whose fault is it? It's the West's fault. The Islamic world has bought into or has been perhaps even, uh, or has been enticed or perhaps even been forced to adopt Western forms of governance, aspects of Western law and economics and so on and so forth. So Ramadan's remedy uh, is that Muslims living in the Western world today not see the world as comprising the domain of Islam or the domain of war, but rather see the whole world as the domain of, the, of testimony, where Muslims, wherever they find themselves, testify to and struggle in their particular context to, to bring whatever geopolitical space they live in into uh, the norms of Islam. In other words, to work at trying to establish a domain of Islam again. To serve as a base. Uh, the, the Arabic term for base is Qaeda. Al Qaeda, the base from which operations could ensue to bring to bring other parts of the world into this domain of Islam. And when Ramadan writes this, he writes in very eloquent English. Um, you know, he's been trained at the best universities in, in Europe. Um, he writes it in such a way that you don't really see what he's going after. But if, any, if you've read, if you're familiar with Islamic cl- classic Islamic thought. It's very clear that Tariq Ramadan and his friends, like my doctoral advisor, are very much interested in Islamizing whatever piece of land they live in. Um, Let me just stop here. We have five minutes till the end. We haven't gotten to what we're supposed to do today. Um, If if there are any questions, let me ask if there are any questions. Yes, by what means, you say they want to uh, bring this about, by what means... Uh, this may seem trite or cliche, but any means necessary. So it could be, and the way they'll usually talk about it is, here in America or in the Western world, um, uh, we don't need to use force of arms. In fact, in Europe, many of them kind of scoff and say, we don't have to use arms, the Europeans are just falling all over themselves, allowing us to do what we want. Um, they'll, but they'll often talk, often talk about cultural and legal jihad, um, others will talk about the term dawa, that is calling people to Islam, proselytizing, mission activity, evangelism. If, even that's that doesn't sound quite right, but um, uh, but that's those are the usual means. Sometimes it could be just being friendly and being a nice liberal Muslim, so so you don't um, upset your neighbors or get them make them suspicious. Um, so any means necessary. And there, there is a doctrine in Islam, that maybe we mentioned last week, but uh, g- uh, generally defined as dissimulation or deception, um, taqiyya, if you want to do a Google search on it, that says you can disassociate yourself with, say, the more extreme versions of Islam, that is the classical versions of Islam, paint yourself as a moderate Muslim, uh, go to bars and drink liquor, perhaps the night before you're going to fly a plane into a building so that you don't draw attention to yourself. Uh, that's perfectly legitimate in Islam. Um, I had talked to you last week and you said maybe bring it up this time about the, what's the significance of the 12th, is it the 12th Imam oh, in Iran? Yeah. yeah, the 12th Imam. It's a, yeah, we didn't do it because uh, only for sake of time. But after Muhammad dies, the the first issue that faces the Muslim state out of, Uh, Arabia is who should succeed Muhammad and what's the character of his successor is the one who succeeds Muhammad simply one who just carries on the traditions of Muhammad Uh, and that would be the Sunni answer or the the, the traditionalist answer you know the, the line of prophethood has come to a close so there's no new revelations all we can do is just simply copy what Muhammad said and did The other side, known as Shi'ism or Shi'ite Islam, answered it differently. They said, it should be somebody who who knew Muhammad all along, who knows the traditions, but it's somebody who should be connected to him by bloodline. And their solution was Ali, Muhammad's uh, son-in-law and cousin, I believe. Is that right? Cousin or nephew? I always get those. I believe cousin. And he was the closest male relative. And so that that community said he is the rightful successor because he has the bloodline, the charisma of the prophet pumping through his veins. And And they argued that as Islam begins to expand, the state will encounter new unprecedented circumstances that Muhammad never even anticipated. And so you need somebody who has a bit of charisma to address these new situations. Um, Ali eventually becomes a successor the fourth time, you know, beginning in uh, 656. The, he's the fourth of the successors. Uh, from him, according to Shiites, begins the line of the Imamate, I M A M, A T E. And some forms of Shiism say that there are seven Imams from the time of Ali. Uh, the more popular version of Shiism, the one that's espoused by the Iranian regime, is Twelver Shiism that says there has been a line of twelve imams from Il- Ali uh, down to the ninth century. The last of the imams was a six-year-old, four or six-year-old boy. The sources disagree um, or com- contradict each other. Um, who, immediately following giving the prayers for his father, the eleventh Imam, disappeared from history, but he's still living even today. He's the what's called the Hidden Imam. Um, the uh, President Ahmadinejad apparently thinks he lives down in the bottom of this well uh, in Tehran, or maybe it's Qom. Um, uh, but the Iranian people especially believe that this 12th imam is around somewhere, and sort of like some of this uh, sort of the Christian dispensationalism, believes that uh, if events get bad enough, you can predict, and in Shiism, you can force the return of this imam. So, lob a nuke at Israel, and they, they know full well what Israel will do. Israel even hears wind of it. They'll lob, you know, who knows how many back at Iran, or preempt that strike, probably. That will cause uh, the international scene to be so horrendous that the imam will come back. And when he comes back, Jesus is going to return um, and uh, pursue Jews, kill Jews, crush every crucifix they can find, and kill every pig they can find. Um, and then Jesus will die and rise again. Uh, the Imam will start or will create this global Islamic empire. Uh, so he's—they're they're looking for his return. I think, yeah, we're way past time, so we've got to—we've got to stop. But I'll stick around for for those of you who are interested in questions.
0: Very informative lecture. So, what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me. You can, my email address, talk back at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till Monday, next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.